You're listening to WMNF Tampa. Duncan is out this week. He'll be back next Wednesday at 11 for Talking Animals. We bring you special animal programming this hour. We'll start with an extended excerpt of a fresh air interview with a veterinarian. And later in the show, we'll hear some recent WMNF news stories about animals. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. My guest, Karen Fine, loves animals. But she finds that when cats and dogs who've encountered her before detect her smell, many will leave the room. She's been told that some cats run and hide when they hear her voice on the phone answering machine. Fine is a veterinarian. She's practiced for more than 30 years, most of that time making house calls. In a new memoir, Fine reflects on her experience treating pets and counseling their owners and using acupuncture and other non-traditional treatments to help her patients. She's written a veterinary textbook about narrative medicine, a field that seeks to improve care by viewing patients in the larger context of their life stories. Her book also deals with the emotional toll the profession takes on veterinarians, who suffer from suicide rates far higher than those of the general population. Karen Fine practices small animal medicine in central Massachusetts, where she lives with her husband and son and an assortment of rescues. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Karen Fine, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. You know, you begin this book with a lovely story about a couple you know who had adopted a feral cat. Not the easiest animals to approach. And they call you because he appears to have an infected front paw. Tell us what happens when you get there. So this was a very difficult cat. He wasn't aggressive or anything. He was just feral. And I had caught him before in a fishing net, which is something that another veterinarian who treated a lot of cats had shown me how to do. And when I I got him wrapped up in the net and I moved him out into the kitchen where the light was better and I could tell what was wrong, he had a front toenail that had grown so long it had grown around into his paw pad and had punctured it and it was infected. And I knew that I could give him antibiotics for the infection, but it wasn't going to stop until I trimmed that claw. And I knew if I got him out of the net, he would run away. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't have any anesthetics with me. And as I was wondering what to do, this cat stretched his leg out straight through the netting, somehow managed to do that, and spread his toes and stayed perfectly still as I trimmed his nail and then I was able to let him go and give the people some antibiotics to put in his food and it was just an amazing encounter. Yeah, so this animal who was panicked at in this net at some point realized uh, this woman is here to help me and I know what the problem is. Here, take a look. Uh, what lessons did you draw from that, the cat's behavior? I think there's so much we don't know and understand about animals. And I think there's a lot that we sort of assume that we know, um, but that they they really have skills and senses that we don't or that we don't utilize to the to the best extent. But certainly say their, their sense of smell is, is much better than ours. And I think there's a lot we can learn from them. And I feel that I learn from my patients all the time. Right. And a lot of that knowledge is in the book. Um, you have to be careful with a cat or a dog that doesn't know you. Um, what are some tricks that you've developed for making it so that you don't get bitten or scratched? 
Well, I, I really listen to my sixth sense and I found that when I don't listen, when I'm in a hurry, that's when I'm more likely to get injured. And sometimes it's a, a person, say, with a dog, and they say, oh, I really don't want my dog to be muzzled. And that's fine. I understand that. And sometimes I'm able to to do that. But there are some times where, oh, if I can just put that muzzle on for a couple minutes, I can get everything done. And really, most dogs don't stress that much over something like that. And it saves me the worry and the anxiety about, am I going to get injured on my job? So it really depends. I really, especially being in the home, I think a lot of animals are much more relaxed. So I probably didn't have to do that as much. And I certainly always wanted the animal to be relaxed. And in fact, if an animal was better with a muzzle on, I would encourage the person to get their own muzzle, get the animal used to it. And I once saw a dog that they had come into the clinic and the woman said this was was a rescue dog that was very difficult and she had worked with the dog a lot and she pulled her own muzzle out of her pocketbook and the dog's tail started wagging. And I was so impressed with that, that this dog had clearly realized that good things happen when the muzzle came out and it was not something he was afraid of at all. Now, cats are tricky. I mean, a lot of times when they're in carriers, they don't like that. Uh, they feel confined, whatever. And then you plop them up on this examining table um, what, what do you look at to see whether you can pick that cat up or what you should do? Cats are difficult and certainly doing house calls. One of the things I ask people to do is to put the cat in the bathroom because the, the hard part was chasing a cat out from behind a sofa or under a bed. The poor things would be so stressed and it was just stressful for everybody. And then by the time I'm looking at them, their heart's racing, you know, they're, they were kind of in fight or flight mode and it's, uh, it just made it difficult. So some cats were totally fine. Some cats, people could go pick them up wherever they were and just bring them to me. And some cats, you know, as soon as there's a noise at the door, they're under the bed. So especially those cats, I said, please, can you put them in the bathroom? At least then we know where they are. You decided to, I, I guess you kept a part-time clinical practice and opened your own business uh, of making house calls and did this for 25 years. Um, why did you do it? I always had the idea in the back of my mind because of my grandfather. So my grandfather was a physician and part of his practice involved doing house calls. And he also had an office where patients would come to see him. But when he saw patients, he also knew them, even if they were in the office, he had been to their home. So he knew them very well. And that really informed his treatment plan. When he died, the family decided that I would inherit his doctor bag, which even came with some instruments, some forceps and hemostats. And I kept it as a treasured possession. And I always had this thought that it would be just a lovely way to practice and to kind of have his his lifestyle. So I thought, you know, I'll try it for a year and I'll see how it how it goes. And I just really loved it. I loved going into people's houses and sitting at their kitchen tables and seeing sort of where their animals ate and things like that. I would say, you know, okay, what are you feeding them? And at the clinic, people don't remember the name of the food. You can't tell how much. 
And at home, someone might say, oh, he only gets a little bit. And I can look across the kitchen and see three overflowing food bowls. So I know that there may be a little bit of denial going on, or maybe there's multiple people feeding the animal, or, you know, we can kind of suss out, okay, why are there three overflowing food bowls if you think that, you know, you're really tightly restricting how much food this animal gets? So you really get useful information from just seeing where they live and how people in the home interact with yes, them, Yes, right? very much, yeah. You know, you write that when you were at a clinic, you hated when, when, um, when pet owners would drop a pet off and just leave, the, the drop-offs could be why you you want you wanted to say ask them questions, right? Uh, that I wanted to ask them questions, and it's sort of getting a story, especially because my patients can't talk. I need to get that history from their caretaker, from their human, and getting something over the phone. Unless I know the person well, if I know the person well, that's a different story. But if I don't know them well, then the, over the phone, you're missing all of those nonverbal cues. And also, I like to see them in the room with the animal and just seeing that connection. And for instance, vomiting with, say, a cat, there can be almost any cause. It could be something mild. It could be something major. And how much, how far do they want to go in terms of testing? And how long has it been going on for? And sometimes, just like with people, it's hard for people to think back and, well, when did it start? It's hard to get a good history. So those nonverbal cues I find really help. Right, right. There's a lot to talk about once you get going. You're right that sometimes when when an owner drops a pet off, you'll get a note that says vomiting and ADR, capital ADR. What does the ADR mean? Yes, I love ADR. So ADR stands for ain't doing right. And that is something that was said in the days of James Harriet, who wrote in Yorkshire, England. His, his real name was Alf White. So he was that veterinarian. And now they have the, the show All Creatures Great and Small, which is based on his uh-huh. book. So ADR just means ain't doing right, can't put my finger on it, they're not themselves. Right. <laughs> it's easier to figure that out if they're there to, to walk you through what, you yes. know, what their habits are like and where they poop and where they don't and all of that. Um, yes, you know, exactly. You, you advise cat owners if t- when you're about to come to corral the cat and just get it into the bathroom because at least it's confined. You also noted that sitting on the toilet seat can help, Right. Yes, yes. And this one, I kind of wished I'd discovered this sooner, but I, this one cat, I was chasing around and around this very nice large bathroom. And the cat was very nice, but just wouldn't allow me to get within a couple of feet of her. And I'm sort of going around and around. And after about 10, 15 minutes of this, I'm thinking, okay, this I'm really not getting any closer to this cat. The owner can't pick her up. So what am I going to do? And then I went and I sat down on the toilet seat and she came right up to me and let me pat her. And I patted her for a couple of minutes and then I picked her up and I was able to examine her and she was perfectly fine. So some cats, you just, you just can't get that close to them. And I thought, oh, well, of course, she's used to her owner coming in and sitting on the toilet and patting her and talking to her. That happens every day. So, of course, that's normal for her. <laughs> right. right. The, the humans are fine when they're on that chair. Things are going right. to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No one's ever come after me from sitting on the toilet. So, <laughs> You um, write that you got interested in alternative treatments such as acupuncture, uh, um, what what role does it play in treating cats and dogs and other animals? 
Yeah, I use acupuncture quite a bit. And I find that it works well for a lot of chronic conditions where Western veterinary medicine maybe either can't really address well or can address with medications that have other side effects. And in some cases, acupuncture just works better, like often for arthritis. That's one of the main things that that I use it for. And I, I really enjoy using it. I feel like it's another way to look at the patient. When I learned traditional Chinese veterinary medicine, I, I realized it's a whole other system of medicine. And it's just fascinating to me to be able to kind of think Western medicine terms and then to kind of flip over and think Chinese medicine terms and how they're similar and how a patient can fit into, you know, if it fits into both systems in a certain way, then I can feel like, okay, I I really think that this treatment plan is going to be effective. So it's something that I've, I've really enjoyed. Right. I mean, it, part of it is acupuncture. It also involves the use of different nutrients, I guess, herbs that are, that, that are added Her- in some Herbs cases. and supplements. Yeah. yeah. I use some Chinese herbal formulas and supplements. And the, the theory is pretty much there's not a... There's not a magic bullet that we're looking for. We're not saying, you know, this, this take this supplement, it's going to fix everything. It's sort of a um, holistic approach looking at everything in the animal's life. And let's look at lifestyle and let's look at diet and those types of things. So sometimes I'll use Chinese medicine and Western medicine together with the same goal. And sometimes I'll be able to use less Western medication or no Western medication because of the Chinese medicine, because of the acupuncture. You, you tell a fascinating story about your own cat uh, named Daiquiri, um, who you'd had for a long time, and you say he was acting strangely, and you say he may have had a headache, which a lot of people don't realize animals do get. How, how, how did you know? Well, when we realized, so the first thing he did was he attacked my dog, which was incredibly out of character. He was a very gentle cat and he was 15 at the time. And when my husband and I talked about it afterwards, we realized we had seen him what we call head pressing. So he had sort of put his head down and pressed his head into her body before he attacked her. And she may have just moved away or something like that. And Animals we assume can get headaches. Headaches are so universal among people that we would think, you know, why wouldn't animals have headaches? And they're not going to kind of put their paw on their their head or something like that. What they're going to do is they're going to isolate themselves. They're going to close their eyes. They're going to go to a quiet dark place. So when people say my animal's hiding, sometimes we think, okay, well, they're, well, they're not feeling well, but it may be a headache. But in his case, he ended up having a brain tumor. And that was something I had learned in school, but not really, see, it's not a very common symptom, this, this head pressing. But I think that's what he was doing. And that's why he attacked my dog. So then I took him for an MRI and he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Right, you saw the the brain tumor, and then you you got in touch with a Canadian vet, Stephen uh, Marsden, right? Who spe- Steve Marsden, yeah, yeah, who specialized in a lot of these non traditional treatments, and this was just fascinating. Give us, tell us a bit about about his exam, what he concluded, what how he treated Daiquiri. So Steve Marsden was teaching a class at Tufts, and it was one of these wonderful 
timing situations that just worked out. My cat had just had his MRI, just had the diagnosis. Steve Marsden was there teaching, and I said, would you do an exam on my cat who just had this diagnosis? And Steve ended up coming to my house because he wanted to see my cat in his own environment. And he felt his pulse and looked at his tongue and did a a Chinese medicine exam. And he said he's suffering from... excessive dampness, which is something that's a Chinese medicine construct. It's not something that makes any sense in Western medicine, but it's a fairly common diagnosis in Chinese medicine. And he recommended some Chinese herbs and a diet change. And at this point, I felt I had nothing to lose. My my next option was euthanasia. My cat had been very stressed going into the hospital, and I wasn't going to have him have radiation treatments for that reason. So I changed his diet, gave him the herbs, and three weeks later, he was normal kitty. And he lived for another year until he was 16. And I, I would have liked to have repeated the MRI, but it was very expensive, not to mention putting my cat through that. But it just amazed me the effect that the Chinese medicine had. Right. You write that dampness meant that the cat was not adequately processing his food, so the byproducts were accumulating in the body and becoming toxic. And this was treated with these dietary changes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it, it worked so well for him. And it's sort of a, it's a, it's a metaphorical, Chinese medicine is a metaphorical thing. So it's not like you can say test for these toxins. It's just from looking at him and his symptoms and his signs, his pulse, his tongue, all these other things that we can tell that this is what's going on with him. It's a pattern. You know, one of the things you mentioned is that you know, some some diagnostic tools and treatments are expensive, like MRIs. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what do you do when the, the diagnostic tool or treatment is expensive and the owner says they can't afford it or just aren't prepared to spend thousands of dollars on, on an animal? That is one of the main curses of veterinary practice and pet ownership, really. It's very difficult. And I myself have been in situations, as of most of my clients, where you're trying to consider, you know, do I have this money? Is it worth spending? And and there's so many factors. One is, you know, whether you have it or not, but also how old is the animal? Is it likely to give them, you know, a short amount of quality time, a long amount of quality time? If you have an animal with a broken leg, say that cat that had an amputation, now that cat's likely to live a normal lifespan and cats do fine with three legs. So that's a very fixable problem. If someone doesn't have the money for that, then a lot of times you're looking at euthanasia. And that is one of the reasons I think why veterinary practice is so stressful is that, you know, even though we may want to, you know, if it's our clinic, maybe do things for less cost or whatever, our bills are very expensive and our, our debts are expensive. The student loan is incredible and, you know, we have to pay bills. And there's almost an expectation, I think, among some clients that we should be doing things for free. And these services even say the blood work, the costs have gone up a lot. They cost, it costs us money. So there's, there's very little that's really free. And it's, it's a very difficult thing. Yeah. Is pet insurance an answer for this? I think pet insurance could be an answer for this. And I, I think 
it's becoming more popular, and I think that's a very good thing. I, it's also a bit of a concern among the industry that it'll become like human medicine, where we have to kind of input codes, and then all the prices will go up because we'll have to hire people to deal with insurance companies, and it'll become, you know, we don't want it to become like human medicine. Right now, yeah, I think it would really help. And sometimes you see something like, say, a, a young dog that eats, gets into something and eats something, and now needs needs uh, expensive foreign body surgery at a referral hospital and that's going to cost thousands of dollars and that's just a difficult situation whereas if you have the insurance you can feel like okay if something like that crops up I can I can deal with it. Let me reintroduce you again. We're going to take a break here. We are speaking with Karen Fine. She's a veterinarian in central Massachusetts. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. She shares some of what she's learned about animals, their owners, and new developments in her profession, including the use of acupuncture and other non-traditional treatments, and the field of narrative medicine, which views patients in the larger context of their life stories. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Um, death is a subject that, that occupies a good good bit in, in your practice and your experience. Animals don't live as long as we do. Um, your cat, Dacry, had gotten great treatment from uh, a physician practicing holistic medicine, but eventually, you know, he was older and I guess at age 16 was in liver failure. Um, and you felt that it was interesting because at this point, you know, the holistic treatments weren't weren't giving the results and that the time was coming you said you felt you that you could tell he knew he was dying and accepting it um share how did you know that share that with us well he retreated to we had a little half bathroom upstairs which had no windows and he retreated there but unlike when he was sick before and I felt that he was having headaches he seemed comfortable he was lying there he was purring he had stopped eating which for him was this was a cat who would eat the house so the fact that he stopped eating that's when I really knew that something was something was wrong and he just was so calm and serene and I really felt that he was ready and I've felt that from many animals when I see animals that are near death that I feel like I see this recognition in them that there's this process going on and it made me really think you know that they're they're having this mind body connection and that their body's breaking down and their mind is accepting that and that's what they're experiencing sort of like if you think of an animal giving birth no one's explained to them you're you're pregnant and you're going to have puppies and this is what's going to happen they listen to their body and they they kind of intuit what to do and i think death is a similar situation for animals and that is that is my opinion after watching so many animals die and be near death when the time came um you decided he should be euthanized right and you chose not to do this yourself i guess i mean you'd you'd done hundreds of them by this point i assume 
Yes, I had. But And some veterinarians want to be the one to euthanize their own animals. And I did not. I wanted to be focusing on my relationship with him and not whether the needle was going into the vein and not the logistics. I wanted to be really fully present with him. And I thought he might go on his own and he would have. He was, he was probably a day or two away from dying on his own. But by that point, I felt, okay, I think he's not comfortable. And knowing where this is going, I don't want him to be further uncomfortable. So that's where I made a decision. When you euthanize a pet, um, tell us just a bit about how you do it to, um, you know, how you manage it so that the, 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 the animal is treated humanely and, and the, the client, the owner, uh, is, is supported. Um, what are some of the techniques you use? That's very important to me. And one of the things I do is I, I often ask the person, have you seen this done before? I'm trying to gauge their comfort level with it. And some people say, oh, yeah, and they kind of know what to expect. Some people say no. Um, and then I kind of walk them through it a little bit that I'll often give a tranquilizer injection first. And then the other injection goes right into the vein that it's usually, um, it's a painless injection, but sometimes they don't like the, the needle or their leg being held or whatever. Um, and it really depends on the person. It's a whole different thing when their, their person isn't there, then it's just me giving an injection and the person holding, usually there's a staff member holding them and we are very much aware that this is not like any other injection. We're very much aware this is a euthanasia and there's sort of a respectful silence. Um, it's, a, it's a strange situation to be euthanizing your patients, I have to say, even after all these years. It's... Um, it's a, it's a strange thing. And I feel like I have a lot of respect for that. And I, I try, I want people to feel supported. And I know that even though this injection may bring this animal so much peace, if they're suffering, it may bring the person in the room with me or the people much pain and anguish. So it's a, it's really sort of the delicate dance in terms of supporting the person. I certainly want to make sure that the animal is comfortable, but we really try hard, um, myself and staff that I, that I work with, we really try hard for it to be a good experience, certainly for the animal, but also for any people that are watching. You know, Karen Fine, before I even read your book, I knew one question I wanted to ask you was... People get into veterinary practice, I think, because they love animals, um, and and we all do. Uh, and and I think for those of us not in the business, we think it must just be so heartbreaking to watch animals suffer. They are just these innocent creatures, and being a vet means that you see a lot of that suffering. Um, and you're with pet owners when they're saying goodbye, when a, when euthanasia occurs, and I'm sure you feel that pain. Yes. So, so when you comfort someone uh, in that moment of terrible pain and you absorb some of that emotional pain, what do you do for yourself? Yeah, that's hard. And that's sometimes I, I think about it more now. Sometimes I write, sometimes I talk to people. I had talked to a therapist at one point, which really helped. And I thought, you know, this, this is, this is something big. Cause I think for a long time, I just thought, 
you know, no, it, it doesn't affect me. I'm fine. It's it's hard, but I do hard things, and I'm I'm I can do it. And it's not something you know. I sort of was very stoic about it, and now I think I'm realizing how important it is that I think we need to talk about it. I think both as as a profession and I think people also need to address it. And really the reason I wrote the book is I see so much human suffering. And I've said, I've seen so many times where people are so upset and I've had people say to me, I'm so glad you helped me through this or I don't even know what I would have done if you hadn't helped me. And it just makes me think, well, what what resources are there this should this it's a difficult painful situation but it's so common and i think people need to recognize how common it is and feel more supported so that it's not something that i think a lot of people feel terrible guilt afterwards and i think that may also be related to the fact that we don't really talk about the importance of this bond and some of these relationships that we have and how we feel when when our animals die one of the things you write is that when an animal dies and there are other pets at home do you ever see the uh, pets grieving the loss of a fellow pet very much so. Yeah, they're they're very deeply affected. I think sometimes more than people because we often leave and go to work or go take a walk or socialize or whatever. Um, and our animals are, you know, often more confined to the house and they have less. They're not watching TV. They're not listening to podcasts. So they they are more maybe in tune with their environment. And some just like some people, some animals are, you know, kind of um, adjust more easily and some really you know, really have a difficult time with it. And then sometimes for the the person to kind of set up a new routine with them, try to get them maybe some enrichment to, to kind of take their mind off of their grief so that they're not, you know, they can get back to eating and kind of in, enjoying their life. But we, we often see animals grieving. Yeah. And, and what do you tell uh, owners to do to help them? To, to try to focus, keep them onto a, a schedule. And sometimes it's a new schedule. Sometimes it's keeping up a little bit with a with an old schedule. Maybe try to, if it's a dog, say, get them out of the house. If they don't have their playmate anymore, try to go to somewhere where they can see another dog um, so that they can, they can kind of keep doing a little bit of what they're doing and just just allowing them that that time and space to grieve because it it is a normal a normal process let me reintroduce you we are speaking with karen fine she's a small animal veterinarian in central massachusetts her new memoir is called the other family doctor a veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love life and mortality we'll talk more in a moment this is fresh air this message comes from NPR sponsor Uni, featuring the Karu 12G outdoor portable pizza oven with multi-fuel versatility. Cook steaks and fish, roast vegetables, and more in the world's most advanced pizza oven. Learn more at uni.com. Uni, make pizza. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with Karen Fine. She is a veterinarian who spent more than 30 years treating animals, much of that time making house calls. Her new memoir is called The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. You have become interested in the field of narrative medicine and are integrating it into your practice. You want to explain what this is? Sure. And I found out 
about narrative medicine, I was doing some online research for writing the memoir. I was looking into what is self-disclosure, which means you sort of as a practitioner saying, well, this is what I do with my animal. And I stumbled across this article from 2001 in a medical journal about narrative medicine for people. And I thought, oh, that's so fascinating. It's looking at the person's story. And I, it's sort of like a light went on for me. And I thought, well, that's why I don't like animals being dropped off because I want to know the story. I don't just want a history with lists of things checked off and things written in lines. I want to know the story. And when I understand the story, then I can understand not just what's going on, but how to help. And that might be different with different stories. Like say there's an animal vomiting from the same cause but different people may have, you know, there may be different things going on in the household that you can do to address it, depending upon the story. And it also kind of goes back to my grandfather's style of practice where you really know who the people are. They're not just like a, a disease process in an exam room. It's not just the diabetes case in room two. It's who who is this person? And for my patients, who, who are their family? Because they have a caretaker. And and the decisions are made by the caretaker and what are their narrative what is their narrative and what do they understand about say medication or cause of disease and that's the type of thing they're looking at with human narrative medicine which i think is just really fascinating and has a lot of a lot of potential to help veterinary medicine as well but i have to ask you a bit about the business of veterinary medicine you've been doing this a long time and i think you think People have a misimpression that vets make a lot of money. Um, give us, give us the real story. Oh, the real story is veterinarians do not make a lot of money. Most of us drive cars with over a hundred thousand miles on them, and the debt is just incredible. And I think that's one, that's theory with you know one reason why there's so few men going into the profession. If you're going to have that amount of debt. You want to have a profession where you're going to be able to have a kind of a hope of paying it back without living a, a very difficult lifestyle. You're talking about debt for, for, for training. Uh, for training, yes, school debt. Yes, school loans. And the other thing is, you know, people think, wow, it costs so much money to, to have my animal have surgery. Well, if they were a person, it would cost, you know, many times more than that. Yet we're using basically the same anesthesia, the same surgical instruments that need to get sterilized. It, you know, much of the care is very similar and you're getting it at a fraction of the cost. So veterinarians are, and certainly veterinary staff is paid very little. So that's why it's, um, it's, a, it's a difficult profession and people get upset. People, people sometimes take out their frustrations on the veterinary clinic staff and that can be a very difficult situation as well. You mentioned one small thing people can do is buy their medication from the vets as opposed to, you know, looking for a deal online. I do think that helps. And I think there's become a, a perception that, well, you should just get a, a prescription from your vet and it's cheaper online. And a lot of veterinary clinics have online suppliers and at least they can get that little bit. And that really does support the veterinary clinic. Even, even I think if it's corporately owned, it's going to be that, okay, this clinic is making more money. They can have another receptionist. Um, they can have more equipment, that kind of a thing. So I think buying your 
buying your flea and tick and heartworm preventative from your local vet clinic, I think is a, is one way to really support your local veterinarian and staff. We were talking about the emotional difficulty of seeing animals die and giving, you know, owners very bad news about their pets and, 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 the stress and emotional toll it takes on veterinarians. Uh, you write in the book that veterinarians have high rates of suicide. This is confirmed? This is over time? Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, multiple studies have, have shown it to be true. And it's really a, an issue within the profession. And since it's really come out, there's been a big focus on wellness that we should veterinarians should try to take good care of ourselves and get enough sleep and eat right and exercise and i i kind of feel like that's very it's a very good start but we also need to try to focus on why this work is so difficult and how bonded people are to their animals and how intense some of these interactions are and there's also a concern that the the focus on wellness kind of puts it back onto the practitioner that, well, if you're struggling, then you're not taking good enough care of yourself. <laughs> so we don't want, you don't want that to kind of be the the thought either. So I think the profession is trying very hard, but still has some more, some more work to do, I think. And I, I think people too need to maybe understand how difficult this, this work can be. Well, I'm wondering how you change the profession so that it is less stressful and emotionally difficult. Yes, that's a that's an excellent question, and I think one thing is just to to realize that it's difficult because even for veterinarians and and say in school, veterinarians many of us are perfectionists, and you know if you're animal, just like a human physician, you think well if your patient dies is that a failure? So kind of really talking about some of these things and reflecting on them, and I I really feel that reflection and looking at some of our our work is important and in human medicine there's more of a a history of that like certainly not every physician you know is necessarily reflective but you have the medical humanities which really looks at what does it mean to be a doctor what does it mean to be sick and we don't have that with veterinary medicine. We're just, just starting to have a couple people talking about veterinary humanities and that sort of thing and about how we can reflect upon our work. Well, I, I wish you luck, Karen Fine. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Karen Fine is a veterinarian in central Massachusetts. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Teresa Madden directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Just a reminder that Duncan is out this week, but he'll be back next Wednesday at 11 for Talking Animals. For the rest of the hour, we'll bring you some recent reports about animals from the WMNF News Team. We'll hear about bears, snakes, pelicans, and corals. But first, we'll start with a story about a rare fish that was found north of Tampa. A sawfish sighting in early June off the coast of Cedar Key suggests that endangered species might be rebounding. Here's the story from WMNF's Talia Van Sistine. 
The core population of sawfish exists near the Everglades and Florida Keys. And even there, among the mangrove forests where the large animals are known to be found, catching one is rare. That's why Dean Grubbs, a co-instructor for a collegiate shark field course, didn't expect he and fellow instructor Gavin Naylor would catch a 13-foot female small-tooth sawfish in June, especially when they were hundreds of miles away from Florida's southern tip. Grubbs says they set a few lines that are intended to catch a sawfish, using ladyfish as bait. But at best, he thought the sets might attract several different sharks for his students to observe and tag. I always sort of thought of it as, well, I know this is just a waste of time, really, and a waste of bait. Sawfish have a distinct snout that's long, flat, and edged with teeth, just like an actual saw. They belong to a group of fish called the lasmobranchs, which also include sharks, skates, and rays. Small-toothed sawfish were reasonably common along the Florida coast, Naylor says, before they were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 2003. Coastal development caused mangrove forests and thus sawfish habitat to decline. Grubbs says witnessing a sawfish so far north of the Everglades may mean that as mangroves expand north, sawfish will too. We have stable mangroves now up in the panhandle, which 20 years ago didn't exist there. Historically, sawfish were viewed as trophy animals. Their signature saw-like snout would be cut off and used as a sort of souvenir. Now, though, Naylor says most of Florida's fishing community are respectful of endangered species and hold each other accountable to protect these animals. He says anglers deserve credit for the sawfish's recovery. You don't need enforcement. It's a cultural norm to protect the environment. Grubbs says he believes the sawfish in Cedar Key is a positive story of recovery and proof of the Endangered Species Act working. People can help with the sawfish recovery effort by reporting any sawfish sightings or catches to FWC's sawfish hotline. If a sawfish is caught, Grubbs says the fishing line should be cut as close to the hook as possible without harming the animal's rostrum and then released. For WMNF News, I'm Talia Van Sistine. Before we get to another WMNF story, I want to tell you about some bear news from last week. Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission officials confirmed Thursday that the state will not hold a bear hunt this year. Concerns that discussion of a hunt might be on the agenda drew animal rights advocates to the commission's meeting at the Hilton St. Petersburg Bayfront last week. But a spokesperson for the commission said the agency has not scheduled a discussion about the bear hunt, which would be needed to set up rules and permitting requirements. In an email, Lisa Thompson said, Earlier this year, FWC commissioners requested staff present an update on Florida black bears to a future commission meeting. However, a date for this update has not yet been finalized. Kate McFall, who represents the Humane Society, was among the bear hunt opponents who addressed the commission on Thursday. She said the public does not support it. The hunt in 2015 brought, unfortunately, a lot of criticism to the agency and negative press nationally. FWC is doing terrific work like the Springs Protection, like working to protect pelicans, your strong response to chronic wasting disease, progress in non-native wildlife, obviously too many to name. So we urge you to keep the focus on the great work being done here in Florida and avoid unforced errors, she said. The commission last approved a bear hunt in 2015, which was the first time in more than two decades. There's more information about this on our website, wmnf.org news. 
Our next story is about the interaction between pelicans and fisher folk near the Sunshine Skyway Bridge over the mouth of Tampa Bay. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission approved a new rule for the Skyway Fishing Pier State Park a week ago today. WMNF's Chris Young reports the rule is aimed at protecting thousands of seabirds entangled at the park located on a decommissioned highway bridge. It's the longest fishing pier in the world and attracts many species of fish. It also attracts pelicans. Melissa Tucker is the Director of Habitat and Species Conservation for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. When it's untreated, severe entanglements and their associated injuries can often lead to the death of the birds. The unintentional entanglement of birds has been occurring at the pier for many years. Angler-seabird interactions are more common at Skyway Pier than at any other pier in the area, based on a published study. The commission met at a hotel ballroom in St. Petersburg for the first of two days of meetings. The new rule prohibits multi-hook rings and gear from mid-November to mid-March. It also requires education for anglers. Mary is the past president of Tampa Audubon Society and spoke during public comment. We definitely support what's going on. We'd like to see more. We think that there's uh, scientific evidence to support a lot more, but it's a start. The new rules will be reviewed two years after implementation. For WMNF News, I'm Chris Young in St. Petersburg. Here's another recent story from Chris. The eastern indigo snake is a threatened species, and the cause may be overdevelopment of the snake's natural habitat in Florida and beyond. The eastern indigo is native to the southeast region and is the longest snake on the continent. Mike Mills is a wildlife biologist at the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation. The habitats they prefer are like these large hardwood hammock forests. And when these get destroyed or even just fragmented, um, that really messes with their large home range they need. And then especially when you fragment it with roads, you see a lot of road mortality with these guys. These snakes also play an important role in the ecosystem. You know, they keep in line the other animals that could get out of hand. Like uh, what some people might not know is that one of their main prey items are rattlesnakes. So they're actually immune to rattlesnake venom. That, that's like one way that we, why indigo snakes can be so good for an area is it kind of keeps the venomous snake population in check. Mills encourages concerned residents to figure out what their local area is doing to preserve the eastern indigo snake. For WMNF News, I'm Chris Young in Tampa. July of 2023 has shattered many heat records on land and in the oceans. The water around Florida has been dangerously hot for weeks, and that spells trouble for marine species, especially corals. Earlier this month, coral reef scientist Bill Precht spoke on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe about how early summer coral bleaching could lead to mass death of corals. How bad can it get? If we don't see any reprieve in temperatures, we look at 90 degree temperatures over the span of the next three months, we could see levels of coral mortality from bleaching that we've never seen before. So that means we could lose, potentially lose 90% of what's left. We lose 90% of what's left, that would be absolutely catastrophic. And I don't wanna sound you know, like I'm, I'm chicken little, but this is really scary territory that we're heading towards. What can we do right now today to stop this? Nothing. We can't just go run out and collect corals and put them in, in aquariums right now because it's too late. This is basically a cumulative effect of global warming and global climate change. But what we can do is continue down the path like the Florida Aquarium has been doing and studying these corals 
taking them in the lab and then doing genetic research and finding out which genotypes of specific corals may be more heat resistant than others and then use those in the future to restore reefs that have been devastated by natural events. When I say natural events, this is a natural event, but basically the fire has been stoked by the burning of, of fossil fuels. That's coral reef scientist Bill Preck speaking this month about coral bleaching on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. You can watch the full interview on our website, wmnf.org news. Duncan will be back next Wednesday at 11 for our Talking Animals. Stay tuned for the first episode of a brand new show that's coming up after NPR News headlines, Slice of Life. It focuses on locally produced first-person narrative stories. On today's show, we'll hear about the Buffalo Soldiers who are in town for their national convention. The Buffalo Soldiers is a black motorcycle club who think of themselves as part of the legacy of the all-black Army regiments. Their chapters ride and do good works in local neighborhoods. In addition to the Buffalo Soldiers, we'll hear a few other stories on Slice of Life today, including from local teens talking about tough topics as they learn about how to produce their own podcast. That's coming up after NPR headlines on WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, Clearwater, Lakeland, Newport Ritchie, and Bradenton. Thanks so much for supporting WMNF.org. WMNF is more than just 88.5 FM. You can also find us online at WMNF.org. Check out the latest news stories, how to volunteer, future WMNF concerts, stream live or the latest episode of your favorite music shows, and more. And of course, you can always show your support and donate by clicking on the tip jar. Explore your community at WMNF.org. to our news and public affairs block here at 88.5 FM. Station manager Randy is in the chair next at noon for the premiere of Slices of Life. You might have heard Sean speaking about that at the end of Talking Animals. Uh, so we'll st- so stay tuned for that. That's going to be an ongoing show here at WMNF in this time slot. Now let's take care of a few more minutes of station business before the news. Hi, this is Mitch Perry, reporter with the Ford of Phoenix and one of the co-hosts of the new public affairs show here on WMNF called The Skinny, where we give you the real straight deal. I'll be joined every Friday morning at 11 a.m. with my co-hosts, Ben Montgomery and Ray Roa, editor-in-chief with Creative Loafing. 
as we get in-depth on some of the biggest stories happening in the Tampa Bay area and Florida. That's this and every Friday at 11 a.m. You're invited to join WMNF in celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop on August 12th. This electrifying live show will include DJ sets and interviews with hip-hop enthusiasts. Hosted by Tone Capone, Concept, Tempest, Valtrenda, and Sipsaki, the event will take place from 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. on August 12th. We're honored to be celebrating WMNF's hip-hop legend, Kenny K, during the event. Skilled photographers and videographers will capture the discussions. We've also invited hosts from WMNF's popular music shows to join us for an on-air discussion about the evolution of hip-hop culture. WMNF DJs, including DJ Toon Selector, DJ SR, DJ Dark Vader, DJ Raheem, DJ Deacon, DJ Slowburn, DJ LCM, DJ Kellen, DJ Spaceship, DJ Chen, and DJ Sinflow will perform 30-minute sets. We're thrilled with the level of cooperation and participation within the WMNF family. The event will also feature special guest artists, staff, and WMNF supporters. We hope to see you there. WMNF presents Bad Reputation, a tribute to women who rock the 80s. You'll hear 10 mostly female bands covering over 40 songs from the 80s, including Blondie, Joan Jett, the B-52s, The Pretenders, Kate Bush, and more, all inside the New World Brewery Saturday, July 29th at 7. Bad Reputation, a WMNF tribute to women who rock the 80s. Free parking, patio, and restaurant. Tickets at 813-238-8001 or at WMNF.org. WMNF Tampa.